And please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. If you are new or have recently begun to gather with us, I would encourage you to hop on to our website and sign up so you can get regular updates, things like what's going on in our church family, like we're throwing a Christmas party on December 12th, right? So we need to, we need to know, or you need to know that that's what's happening and that we're gathering to do that. More uh, info's coming soon, or just regular updates about things like getting your worship book on Sunday mornings and things like that on an easy uh, link. But we are in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8. Uh, if I can find my notes here, there they are. Yay, that's right. Mina is pumped that we are still in Romans 8. Um, suffice to say, uh, Romans again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, get to Acts, keep going to the right, First, Second Corinthians, go back to the left if you are growing in your familiarity with the Scriptures. Um, suffice to say, usually on Sunday mornings, I'm supposed to wake up early and cut about a thousand words uh, out of my sermon. Uh, I couldn't do that today, and, but I still have to be done at 11. So at 11 o'clock, you can start looking at me cross, and I just know I need to land the plane and pray so we can have some discussion afterwards. But if you remember, uh, last week, we just introduced a time after the sermon for us to discuss and say, hey, this is how this particular passage or this, this lesson hit me. Here's how I think I need to grow or confess sin. Or here's just a question I have. Jason, when you said this, that actually didn't make any sense. And you talked about it for 10 minutes and I was lost. Can you help me understand that a little bit better? And so hopefully that will be a time for us to really understand how do we apply this word or how the Spirit of God rather applies this word uh, to our lives. And so after we uh, walk through however much time we have or much content we can through uh, to 11, then we'll take some time to consider some reflection questions, discuss, and then we'll sing and be blessed as we go. Sound good? With that being said, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. We've heard this text already read. Um, now let's just ask for God's help to understand it, that we might become the men and women he's calling us to be. Heavenly Father, it's really good in a season, a life where there is a ton of chaos and confusion, your, your word is a light, shines brightly in the darkness, and in that confusion and uncertainty, it brings clarity where there is vagueness, it brings hope where there is hopelessness, and it brings comfort where there is sorrow, but it also gives us meaning in the middle of our sorrow and suffering. It gives us understanding and purpose in that. And so I thank you that regardless of where my sisters and brothers find themselves today, or really wherever my own heart is this morning, that your word is what we need. Your word is, uh, is grounding to us. It's clarifying to us. It's, 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 like, it's like drinking fully of living water, is what the scriptures say. And so help us to drink of that today. We pray, Father, where there would be a spirit of shame, would that be cast out in Jesus' name, or where there'd be a, a fear of judgment, that you would settle our souls with peace. We thank you that we come to your word, not to be torn down, but to be comforted, to be corrected for sure, but also, Father, to be comforted, built up, so that we might become the kids of the Heavenly Father you're calling us to be. So would you do that in this moment? Help us to not just have things that we need to apply to our lives tomorrow. By the power of your word, would you change us on the spot? We love that you can do that. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen. So suffice to say in our passage today that uh, Paul is going to give us two different ways of living, two different ways that we see the world, behave, think, and and act, and he unfolds those in Romans 8, verse 5, and so let's look at it together. For those who live according to the flesh, Paul says, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Now, one of the things that is going to be really important as we investigate this particular passage, we'll do our best to look at five through eight today, and whatever we don't fully complete, we'll come back to in the next couple of weeks. Um, What we need to keep in mind is that Paul is really clear here and elsewhere, these are the only two ways. These are the only two. So these are not two options on on a list or a myriad of different things. He says it's one or the other implicitly here, and I think explicitly elsewhere in Paul's writing, particularly where we've already been in Romans, he's been really clear that there are two ways to live. In verse 5 here, he says living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. And in chapter 5, it was either a part of the Adam humanity or the Messiah humanity. We're either under the law or under grace. That's chapter 6, verse 14. Or either in sin or we are in Christ. That's chapter 6, verse 23. It's one or the other. Are you with me? This is deeply unsettling to a 21st century church family. Deeply unsettling. This goes against the grain of everything that we are taught, and we learn to sort of presume within this world. Because generally speaking, we don't like one or the other dynamics, do we? Because we are all individuals, we're all very, very unique, and need our own little niche that doesn't fit within either of those boxes. So let's just be honest. Let's be clear. Whatever is like going on in your spirit right now, it's probably going on in all of our spirits. I don't like either or. I don't like one or the other. I don't like this uncompromising nature that faith is constantly being taught within the scriptures. That, that, that's what it's all about. In fact, when we think that there, and this is how it sort of kind of comes out in, in our lives, we think that there are some Christians who are like just normal Christians, right? And probably the great majority of us, just normal Christians. And then there are these others who are like saints, really, really godly and incredible people who have strong faith. The rest of us just happy to be on the team. Like we believe that Jesus has saved us, but we believe like maybe we got selected in the seventh or eighth round, right? Sorry, that's a sports illustration. We were in the first round where all the good players get chosen, right? We, we fell almost to not even be drafted, but we're just happy to be on the team. Isn't it true that many of us believe that there are these sorts of things. Believe me, I know, because the way sometimes people approach me as if I'm on the varsity, while most of my life, I know I shouldn't be on the team. So when you treat me as if I'm some sort of special Christian, one, it goes to my ego, that's my kryptonite, not helpful. So help protect your brother from a great sin in his heart by not treating me differently. But also, you know, like most of the time, I've got imposter syndrome just like anybody else. Just like anybody else. The only difference is I have to go public and talk about these things with you all, about like where my spiritual journey and how I believe the Lord is teaching us from the scriptures, a different calling, but certainly not an elevated spirituality. See, this is a lie. This is a lie that we believe that we have made within our heads that there are those who are like in Christ and on the team and those who are real saints and real incredible people. And so what this has led to, I think, in in many of us, particularly in in our 20s and 30s, I think this is prevalent in our spiritual journeys is that we create this third way to live. So Paul is talking about two ways, either in the flesh or in the spirit, in or under the law or under grace. And we have sort of like, because of this mentality, this sort of gradation of faith, we have come up with a third way. A third way that essentially is is like this, that it's definitely not according to the spirit or according to the flesh, but it is a little bit, right? Absolutely not part of the Adam humanity at least not every day. Certainly not under the law unless I haven't had my coffee yet and then probably under the law, right? And not fully in sin, but I still like to have fun. 
So we've blended a little bit of both of these things where we like to believe that our legal status before God, we are saved, but right now I kind of want to do what I please. I kind of want to do what I like. See, we've created a category of faith that I'd like to suggest to you is completely foreign to the scriptures. It's completely foreign from the Bible. This sort of mediocrity in faith where we are definitely saved but live as we please is something we've invented within ourselves that we can have a little bit of both, which leads ultimately to kind of a passivity towards righteousness. That when somebody addresses us in righteousness, they're like, whoa, calm down. It's not really that big of a deal because there's also a permissiveness towards sin. So we have a passiveness towards righteousness and a permissiveness towards sin in this third way that we have created kind of between the life in Christ and the life um, in sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So this category that we've made is invented and it's false and it's a fiction. It actually really reveals, when we look at the teachings of Paul, particularly here, is that we're still in the flesh. When we act like that, like we have this third way, it's actually just revealing that we are still in the flesh because it's one or the other. It's of the flesh or it is of the spirit, by the flesh or by the spirit. Now, Paul is kind of gentle, believe it or not, in the way that he communicates that in Romans chapter 8. James and Jesus, not so much. James says this in James 4 verse 4, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you hear that? It's one or the other. But James learned this from Jesus, who said in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve Jesus as God and money. God and mammon. It's one or the other. It's the flesh or the spirit. There is no in-between or kind of or sort of or just a little bit of both. I kind of like to keep my options open and see which way the wind blows on a particular day. In fact, I think as we've already said, I think that really reveals that we are not fully in understanding what the, what the gospel actually makes available to us in Christ. And I think it exposes a lot of lies that we've either been taught or have taught ourselves and begun to believe about ourselves. And this is why I think this teaching is so important. Because ultimately the life in the spirit and the life in the flesh are, are things that I think that we may understand in concept, but in reality the way that they work themselves out in the scriptures is deeply hopeful and powerful and comforting for us. So what Paul is going to do to help his readers, both then and I think by his spirit now, by God's spirit now, is understand three things about these two ways of living. Three things about these two ways of living. First, the life of the flesh and the spirit. The second is the mind of the flesh and the spirit. And third, the result of the flesh and the spirit. So the life, the mind, and the result. These are the three things he's going to cover in Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. And again, we may only have time for that first one today. God help us. But first, it'll be the life. What what, is, what does it actually look like to live by the flesh or by the spirit? Because this is like vernacular that maybe we use, but at a heart level, we're kind of confused, I think. I know, I know that I can be. Secondly, the mind. What motivates each way of living? What's underneath that life? What's, what's underneath these patterns of living? Paul will expose those things. And then lastly, he's going to give us the result. Because each of these ways of living, each of these minds that are set on something, has a particular consequence or a result. In fact, the language, as we'll see, lacks a verb, which helps us to see that the life of the Spirit is life, and the life of the flesh is death. So a result, in, in essence, that we have already are already reaping right here and now. So it's not in the future, but it's a reality 
right now. So the mind, or rather the, the life, the mind, and the result. Let's look at the life first. Paul introduces this language actually in this whole chapter. This is why we've read the whole chapter, or at least up until this point, in Romans 8 today. Look back up, if you're still in Romans chapter 8, look back up at verses 1 through 4. He introduces this language of the one or the other, the life of the flesh or life of the spirit, at the very beginning of the chapter. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk, again, hear this, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he repeats that idea again in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, the reason it's one or the other, and and here's what I think that the Scriptures testify to all over the place, is that the flesh and the Spirit are at war with one another. They are mutually exclusive. They compete with one another. They are diametrically opposed to one another. So when we believe that we can have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of what we want and a little bit of what He wants, we actually are believing a lie and living out a lie that says these things are not diametrically opposed to one another. This is why Jesus says, ultimately, you can't serve both masters. And we are serving a master. And we are living either the life of the flesh or the spirit. It's one or the other. Paul makes this clear. While the life of the spirit, he says, set you free from sin and death, the life of the flesh is deadly and sinful. However, if we're not careful, and I think this is a context that I grew up in, or at least began to be exposed to, if we're not careful, we'll pit the wrong things against one another when we think about the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. In in other words, I don't think we totally understand, and I, I know that I've had to do a lot of learning this week, in fact, about the life of the flesh and what that means. And providentially, let me just give you like a little bit of window. I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I find it fascinating. So we've been in Romans for a minute, right? And then we get to... Romans chapter 8, and in God's providence, I start reading Ecclesiastes in my own personal time in the Word, and I think it was like Monday or Tuesday morning. All of these little dots start connecting, like, oh my gosh, how is the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, making these connections with Romans? And then all of a sudden, I think that I was uh, listening to uh, a couple of professors teach on the nature of preaching and postmodernism, the other day, and they started talking about Luke 15. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, and it's just like the Lord weaves this thing together. So these digressions may just be really fascinating to me, but I was drive the point home of what Paul is saying. We'll see it in Ecclesiastes. We'll see it in the teachings of Jesus in Luke 15 about this nature of the life according to the flesh. See, to help us understand, we'll go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to touch in on just three different points. And so if you'd like to, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I always find that, that book hard to find. I'm always going to the table of contents because it gets lost in a lot of different minor prophets and places where I'm looking for. And anyway, the table of contents is our friend. Or you can just type it in, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A-T-E-S. I'm looking at it. I don't know how to spell it otherwise. Ecclesiastes is essentially the writings of an old man looking back on his life and searching for meaning. So if you want to understand why these words are being put together, it is an old man looking back on his life and trying to make sense of it all, which is a very human thing. If you've ever been around someone in their 60s, 70s, 80s, contemplating, looking back at your life, this is a very natural thing to do. Was I faithful? Was it worth it? Who did I impact? This is what Solomon is doing. 
And, and as we look at these texts, keep in mind, the main theme of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless or life is vanity without God. Life is meaningless, life is all vanity without God. So let's stop at a couple of places, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The first, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 and 11, Solomon writes, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all toil, and this was my reward for all toil. So he's trying out, looking back at all the different things that he tried in his life, and he's remembering a season when he just gave himself over to pleasure. Whatever he desired, he says, I let myself do it. And here's what he, he learned. All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained other the sun, under the sun. In other words, what Solomon learned is that pleasure is vanity or meaningless without God. Pleasure, physical pleasure, intellectual stimulation, whatever it might be, all pleasure is meaningless without God. Secondly, look at verse 15, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. This is a season when he's trying out wisdom to see if living wisely actually reaps meaning in his life. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that, is also, that also is vanity. In other words, when he was living wisely, he looked at all the fools and it's like their lives are ending up pretty much like mine. Why would I do the hard thing and live a wise life when these fools and I are ending up in the same place? What's the conclusion? Wisdom is meaningless without God. So pleasure is meaningless without God. Wisdom is meaningless without God. Finally, look at verse 26. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So here he was giving money and power and work all of his heart and all of his meaning. And what does he find out? If I give myself over to my work, someone else is going to get it after I die, and they're probably going to squander it. In fact, in this chapter, he starts thinking about his son and going, oh man, if he takes all of my stuff, he's not going to steward it the way that I want him to. And in fact, I'm not going to have it anymore. He's going to have it. So everything I've reaped in life, money, power, possessions through work is just meaningless without God. He's going through all of these places in his life, particularly in chapter 2, and he finds out that pleasure is meaningless without God. He finds out that wisdom is meaningless without God. Work, or rather, work, power, money, the accumulation of things is meaningless without God. Now, these things we sort of intuitively know, but we live very, very different lives according to that intuition. See, if we're not careful, then we presume something upon Ecclesiastes, and I think the entirety of the Christian life and the Christian scriptures we often wrongly assume the point of Ecclesiastes and elsewhere is that pleasure, knowledge, and money and work are meaningless or are evil themselves. We even read Ecclesiastes and hear all of this vanity chasing at the wind and meaningless and think what he's ultimately finding is that pleasure, knowledge, and money and work are all evil. In fact, there's a prevalent heresy in the second century many of us don't know about, but we live our lives by called Gnosticism which essentially taught that the material world and the physical matter were all decaying, rotting, and deadly. Many of us, I think, still believe this. Perhaps we grew up in a context where we were told that something was wrong if you enjoyed it. If it was fun, that's evil. If it brings you elation, right? If it piques your interest, don't do that because God wants you to be holy, not happy. He's focused on your holiness. And we all know to be holy is to be angry and sad all the time, right? 
This is the lie we begin to believe in this. And so we look at things like pleasure and knowledge and money and work, and we believe that they are evil. So perhaps unwittingly, you've been impacted by this perspective. Perhaps this is something that's sort of deeply embedded in your heart, that you were taught that the God of the Bible is like a cosmic killjoy, that any place that you find fun or frivolity or rest or something that actually nourishes you at a physiological level of your happiness, we believe that God perhaps cares about our holiness but cares little about our happiness. By God's grace, Solomon writes, and everything that he writes in Ecclesiastes refutes that false doctrine and way of thinking. He is not saying that pleasure and knowledge and work and money are evil. He is saying it is wrong to embrace and enjoy these things without God. It will not give you what only God can. See, Solomon does this by exposing a life in Paul's language that is lived according to the flesh and confirms the beauty of a life lived in the Spirit. See, church, all is meaningless, all is vanity without God. Without God. But with God, pleasure, wisdom, money, and work can be enjoyed without reservation. How many of us grew up with that kind of mentality within the church to pursue these things that were dubbed as earthly and wrong and sinful? You're supposed to pursue all of those things with God that you might enjoy them rightly. See, let's not miss this. The difference in between the life of the flesh, remember, it's one or the other, the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. This is it communion with God. Because when you are communing with God, the pleasures of this world are fun, but they are not central. When you are communing with God, money is nice, but it is not your hope. Right? Are you tracking with me yet, church? When you are communing with God, work is meaningful, but if you lose your job, it does not crumble you because you are not your work. You are not the sum total parts of your productivity, right? See, life without God is meaningless, it's corruptible, it's a life in the flesh. But life with God is full of meaning, it's eternal, it's life-giving, it's life according to the Spirit. I want to press this even more, and I think it comes off the page in Luke 15. And I'm just going to summarize it for you, so if you'd like to turn there, that, that's fine. But, but the, Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. And in fact, I was on the phone with my five-year-old niece, Lucy, the other day. And she reminded me that a better name for Luke 15 is not the prodigal son, but the lost son. And I was like, yo, someone is raising this girl right. So I said, I'm going to talk about the prodigal son on Sunday. He goes, well, you know, Uncle Jason, it should probably be the lost son. And I was like, okay, okay. Anyway, well done, Lucy. Many of us, I think, when we first heard this story about a boy who squanders his family's inheritance early, essentially asking that his father would be dead or that it would be better off if his dad was dead, give me my money now, we look at what he did and are grieved by his fleshly and lascivious living, right? If you remember, he goes to the far-off country and he squanders all of the money and then he comes home after he desires to essentially be dead and tells his dad that he's going to, he's ready to tell his dad he just lived like a hired servant. See, and we, we should, we should be grieved by the way that he lived. But that's not Jesus' point for telling the story. See, I think many times that we, we hear that story of the prodigal son, we believe that the story begins with a party but the point is, is that it actually ends with a party. We think that the, that the story of the lost son is like the bad things that happen in the far-off country. It's like partying and, and, and using money, right, and pursuing pleasure and those sorts of things. But that's not the point that Jesus is telling. It's, it's not that the story begins with a party. It's that it ends with one. You see, the issue that Jesus presents is not that the, that the son thinks he can seek pleasure and enjoy 
money and power in and of itself. It's that he seeks those things without his father. It's that he chases after those things without his father. In fact, the lost son believes, until I am free of my dad, I cannot enjoy this life. Am I preaching to you yet? Until I get rid of my dad and create some distance from him financially and physically. Now, to be sure, many of us need to create boundaries with our earthly fathers. That is, that is not evil and wrong in many different cases. But you never need to do that with your heavenly father. You never, and, that, and that's the story. Jesus is telling the story to tell us about our heavenly father, not our earthly ones. And to be sure, it ought to be aspirational for us as earthly parents. But he is telling us about the nature of the heavenly father. You see, if the partying and the pleasure and the money are the issue in Luke 15, then why, when the son returns, does the father throw a party with feasting and dancing and celebration so much base that the older son hears it while he is out on the field? So much joy that it, cannot, it doesn't only fill the room, it leaks out into the fields. This is not a story in Luke 15 about how bad things happen at parties. It's how good parties can be when they are with your father. When, they, when you come back with your dad. See, enjoyment is not the issue. Life without the father is the issue. I think when we try to pursue that third way, this is what we're doing, my sisters and brothers, and remember how much I love you. We believe that we can only have a fun, enjoyable, and happy life without the restrictions that God is putting on us. And so we'll go, I want to be saved forever, and so I'll go with God but right now, I just want to have fun. I, want to have enjoy- I just want to seek pleasure. And we believe that we can have it both ways, but you can't. It crushes and cripples and kills you because true enjoyment cannot happen without communion with God. That's Paul's point about life according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. See, in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, there is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. If that's true, then the life of the Spirit is all about being in Christ, with God, who is our mediator between you and me and our Heavenly Father. Free from judgment, free from shame, free from condemnation, full of joy. See, it's one or the other. Life according to the flesh or life according to the Spirit. Life without God or life with God. It is one or the other. This is the life according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. And I think this is the fundamental idea that Paul is communicating here in this first portion of Romans chapter 8. And and here's the deal. We'll end on this, and we'll pick up where we left off in a couple of weeks. What Paul seems to be writing is that you choose, right? Choose now. Are you going to live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? But here's the spoiler that we know from our own hearts and the story. All of us have chosen the life of the flesh. All of us. Myself included. And so daily that pang to have it both ways is part of the product of the brokenness of our souls. It's part of the ripple effect, the remnant, if you will, the residue. See, Jesus alone lived the life according to the Spirit. Jesus alone has always, in other words, done life with the Father. This is why he was so insistent. Whenever anyone was telling him to do something, he's like, not yet. My dad said otherwise. No, no, I can't, I can't do that yet because I'm, I'm with my Father, and, and I do the Father's will. You remember this? Everything he says, I'm here to do my Father's business. And yet, the first miracle that Jesus does was not some stale, 
like just sort of legalistic teaching about something, right? What was the first thing he did? He brought good wine to a party to bring joy, to bring sensation, to bring healing and hope, right? So Jesus seems to believe something that you and I don't, that God cares about your holiness and your happiness. In fact, within the gospel, there is a brand of happiness that makes you holy and a kind of holiness that actually makes you happy. See, too often we try to pull these things apart, and Jesus demonstrates that he had this life of both, and he offers it to, to all of us. He offers both. See, Jesus alone has always lived with God, and therefore, only through him can you and I enjoy the life of the Spirit. If he is the only one who has done it, then he is the only one to impart it. And here's the gospel. The gospel is that it doesn't just have to be one way. God would have been fair and just go, you chose the life of the Spirit, the consequence of that is before you. It is beautiful that it is one or the other. That or is of eternal significance to you and me. That there is actually this other way that Jesus presents to us. That those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, because we've chosen a life according to the flesh, a life apart from God, a life where we believed we should depart or separate happiness and holiness. He says, you can have this other way. And through God and Christ, may we not just enjoy it, the one time that we become followers of Jesus, but may we know that's our new way to be human. That's our new way to be a people whom God has called by his own, for his own possession, to be a holy people who find a happiness in him as well. Let's pray before we have some discussion together. Heavenly Father, it's really good to be your kids. And yet, like an ornery child, I weakly battle with that. I, we I weakly battle believing that it's not good to be your child. It's not good to be your son. There's something better out there for me in the far-off country that if I would just get space from you, I could have fun, that I would know joy. I suspect that may be true in my sister's and brother's hearts as well, so we ask for your forgiveness. But we thank you that though we have lived according to the flesh and regularly we are tempted, even as Christians, to pursue a life without God, we thank you that in Christ there is forgiveness there is healing, there is hope, there is a heavenly father who does not wait for us to come back to him, but he chases us down. And then he throws a party upon our return. That just makes no earthly sense. Yet what good gospel news that is for us. So encourage us in that. Help us to walk in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.